together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to sit in a place of freedom with your word in our hands. Lord, we thank you for the moving of your Holy Spirit as he works uh, within us. We thank you for the way in which you've drawn us to yourself. And for some of us here, Lord, even at how you are currently drawing them into a place of relationship with you. And we ask that today their heart would be open. Every one of our hearts would be open to receive from you what it is you have for us today. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in Acts chapter 13. We actually did one verse in Acts 13 last week. We, we had to finish up some of the material of chapter 12. Uh, and so today we, uh, we're going to pick up pretty much from where we left off. And I'll remind you, important that we're reminded of this, and it'll become important as we move on, that what we learned in verse 1 of Acts chapter 13 is that that church there in what is called Syrian Antioch was a very healthy church. I'll remind you, read the verse with me, verse 1. You read quietly. It says, now while they were, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now through that verse, and some other verses that we kind of peeked ahead at, as well as some things that we learned about the church in Antioch in some of our previous studies, what we discovered and what we could conclude is that we were talking about a very strong, healthy body of believers, demonstrated by four things that I drew your attention to, and perhaps others as well. One is that it was a body of believers that was well taught. They knew the scriptures and how to apply the scriptures, not just to win some trivia contest, but how to apply it to their daily lives. They were a well-taught congregation. We saw that they were a diverse group of men and women that came from a whole host of different backgrounds, some more religious, some less religious, but they were a people that had encountered Christ for themselves and their lives were changed for having done so. We spent some time considering how the ministry was not just in the hands of one or maybe two people, who did all the ministry, like the pastor, for instance, but rather the entire body was discovering what their gifts were and they were using their gifts for the building up of the body for the glory of Christ. And then we considered how they were an others-centered congregation, not just focused on building themselves up and building their numbers and building their place in the world and all these kinds of things, but they were a congregation that was looking for the well-being of others, as will be demonstrated in our study today. And so it's because of these things, and, and I know I do this every time we're together, and you're thinking, yeah, we did that last week. Why are we going over it again? It's, it's important for us to be reminded of how healthy this church was because the events of what we're going to consider this week and the following three or four weeks or so, really, the events that we're going to consider for the rest of the book of Acts is dependent upon how healthy they were as a congregation. It's that health, that strength of the congregation that made all the things that they were going to do for the Lord even possible. So we transition now in chapter 13 to the missionary journeys 
of the Apostle Paul. As I pointed out to you, Paul becomes the primary focus in many ways, or the work that God is doing through Paul becomes the primary focus in, from chapter 13 on. And we're going to have chronicled for us three missionary journeys where Paul, if you will, voluntarily set out to reach a, a part of the world for Christ. And then we have a fourth missionary journey that he himself really didn't pick. They put handcuffs on him and they brought him and Paul used that as a ministry opportunity as well. And so we have now this church established, well-taught, appropriately integrated into the world in which it lived and centered on the well-being of others. In short, we have a perfectly equipped body of believers to go out and reach the world for Jesus. And so verse 2, where we begin our study really for today, it says this, Now while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. While they were worshiping the Lord. That's what the ESV says. If you're reading the NIV, maybe you're reading the New American Standard, it's worded that way. It uses the phrase worshiping the Lord. A more literal translation uses the phrase ministering to the Lord. We find that in the King James Version, the New King James. We find that in Young's Literal. While they were ministering to the Lord. And notice the wording there, important wording. It's a small little word. But it says there that they, it doesn't say there that they ministered for the Lord, but rather that they ministered to the Lord. And in the eyes of the Lord, the most important ministry that we can do is not ministering for him, but ministering to him. And we do that through worship and praise and in prayer and in adoration. And then from that, as we will see as we move forward in our passage, then comes the ministry for the Lord. And I emphasize it because I think far too often, well-meaning men and women, we mix the order up and we get busy serving the Lord without nurturing our relationship with the Lord. And we even say things to ourselves, I don't have time for a quiet time. I have to get busy going and serving the Lord. That's a very dangerous thing. You will burn out and you will not be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forth much longer. Jesus did not save us so that he might have one more servant in his ranks busy accomplishing tasks for him. Jesus saved us so that we could be in relationship with him. And our service comes in response to who he is. Not so much even what he has done, but to who he is. Our service is to come from our heart of worship and gratitude. And so then one more example of the strength of this congregation, the health of this body of believers, is their understanding that the vitality of their walks and the vitality of the, any ministry that they may end up doing comes from sitting in the presence of God and giving him the, the glory that he is due, hopefully as we are doing here this morning. And so Luke tells us, that they were ministering to the Lord, they were worshiping. And then he adds that they were fasting. Now in the scriptures, fasting means to forego food for a period of time in order that one might devote themselves 
to seek the Lord's will and direction about a particular area. Now Luke doesn't ever tell us here why they were fasting. What was it that they were seeking the Lord's direction about? He doesn't tell us why they were set apart in this particular way. But I think based upon how the Holy Spirit responds to their time of fasting and prayer may give us an indication of what it was they were seeking the Lord about. And so again, notice it says, And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And as the passage is going to go on to say, the very next thing they do is going to be to go out and into world missions, essentially. And so I think it's safe for us to assume that what they were seeking the Lord about was the world and its need for a savior. They went before the Lord in prayer and the Holy Spirit responded. Notice that about the Holy Spirit. Some consider whether they actually believe this and teach this or just act in this particular way. Some look at the Holy Spirit as some inanimate force that is out there. You'll notice the Holy Spirit himself responds to their special seeking of him. And he speaks into their lives. He says to them, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which, we have called, to which uh, he had called them. And again, we're not told specifically what they were seeking the Lord for, but I do think because of their response, his response, we can draw our conclusion. These believers were moved by the need of the Gentile world, a world which hadn't heard the good news of Jesus Christ yet. Much of the Jewish world had, but the Gentile world had not. And they were moved by that need to hear the gospel, and so they begin to seek the Lord as to what could be done to meet that need. And notice how God answers. We might paraphrase their prayer this way, God, something has to be done to reach these people with the good news. And the Holy Spirit's response, I agree. And I've chosen you to be the one to do it. I'm reminded of Isaiah the prophet. Who shall go? And the Lord sent him. He asked the question, and he's the one the Lord would send. And that's God's typical way of working. He lays a burden on a particular person or a group of people's hearts. They begin to devote themselves in prayer about that particular burden. And then he raises someone up from among that group to go and do that work. Perhaps not, that's not always the way it happens, but very, very, very often that is the way that God moves. By sending the very people who had the burden on their hearts to pray. And so the Holy Spirit here, perhaps through those prophets we read about in verse 1, or perhaps just through sort of an inner speaking and pressing upon the hearts of each of these individuals, but one way or another, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that they are to set apart Barnabas and Saul to go to reach the Gentile world. Two things stand out to me about that, one from the perspective of the congregation and the other from the perspective of the two men that are sent out by the congregation. Let's look at the first one. From the perspective of the leaders of the congregation, the Holy Spirit says, calls them to set apart almost certainly the two most gifted leaders in the congregation. And the people of the church of Antioch, they willingly, they enthusiastically allow the two most gifted leaders of the congregation to go. The church here in Antioch, they're not casting off some folks that they were hoping to get rid of anyway. 
off. We could just find a mission for that person so we could get rid of them. That's not what they were doing. I've been to plenty of uh, pastors' conferences, mission conferences, and things like that. And one of the, the things that those missionaries that are out on the field, as they're looking for fellow laborers to come alongside of them because the work is just too great for them out there, one of the things that they always say is this, please, do not send for us someone that you yourself wouldn't hire for your church if you could afford them. We're not looking for your cast-offs, so to speak, that you're just trying to get rid of. And here you have this situation, Barnabas and Saul, perhaps the two most gifted leaders of that church, and the church willingly sends them to go reach others with the gospel, with the gospel. Again, it's an others-centered congregation. Now, secondly, we look at things from the perspective of Barnabas and Saul. It says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Now, from their perspective, the fulfillment of this calling for Barnabas to go, for Saul to go, required that they as individuals be set apart unto the Lord. And so, listen, before Barnabas and Saul could do anything significant for the Lord, they would first have to be separated unto the Lord. This would not be a mission that they dabbled in. To say yes to God's call in their life, they would have to say no to those things that would threaten to keep them from that call. And so a person that seeks to be separated to God inevitably is going to have to separate themselves from some other things. All right, so we considered it from the perspective of the people in the church, but now we're considering it from the perspective of those that are actually going. If they were going to do anything for the Lord, there were things inevitably they would have to be separated from. And of course, I'm speaking about sin, I'm speaking about rebellion against the will of God in their lives. I'm hoping that kind of goes without saying. But additionally, for them to fulfill the Lord's call in their lives, they would have to separate themselves from, from some other things that were not sin at all. Perhaps a particular career. Because that career would hinder where they could go and when they could go there. Perhaps a particular lifestyle because their choices would no longer allow them to support that lifestyle. Perhaps certain relationships, perhaps even getting married, because those relationships would demand certain attention that this calling would not allow them to provide. I remember when I first started serving here at Calvary Chapel, the way in which the Lord impressed upon my heart the need to simply go to bed earlier on Saturday nights so that I would have the drive and energy to minister to the needs of people that I came in contact with on Sunday mornings. Now going to bed earlier on Saturday nights meant less involvement and activities on Saturday nights. But to fulfill the calling that the Lord was laying on my heart, it involved myself in separating unto him in that very minor way. On a much grander scale, Barnabas and Saul's calling required them to be separated unto the Lord as well. And on a much smaller scale, it does for each one of us that are gathered here today. 
And so a few questions for us to consider. What will it take in your life to fulfill the call that God is placing for you to meet with him, for instance, daily in his word? Maybe like the example I shared earlier, it will involve going to bed a bit earlier so you can get up to study, read his word. Maybe it'll be getting rid of your cable service. Do people even have that anymore? Or your, your subscriptions? So that you'll be forced to spend less time watching TV and more time sitting with him. Perhaps it'll be going through your finances and your weekly or monthly budget to find places where you can spend less so that instead you can begin to give to those causes that you presently feel the Lord is calling you to support. Maybe it'll involve similarly going through your appointment calendar to free up some wasted time in your daily schedules to be more available to do what the Lord is directing you to do. The point is this. In order for each of us to be set apart to the Lord, we will almost certainly have to be set apart from something else that will hinder us from fulfilling that calling. So again, what's the Lord calling you to? And what are some things that he is calling you from? Now for Saul and Barnabas, we know the work that the Holy Spirit had called Saul to and presumably Barnabas to as well. Paul was told that, Saul was told that at his conversion. We read in Acts chapter 9 this, but the Lord said to him, this is Ananias, the guy who was going to go pray for Saul, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so we know what Paul's calling was. And here now, 12 or so years later, is the beginning of the fulfillment of that call. The Lord has brought about the fulfillment of those words. Verse 3 continues, it says, Now after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Saul and Barnabas had discovered, the whole church there, the leaders at least, had discovered the will of God in prayer, in fasting, and now after knowing the will of God, they pray and they fast once more. Doesn't tell us why. It's almost as if they want to, are, are we sure about this? But one way or the other, they're praying again. So notice that. Notice the place that prayer and fasting plays in the life of this healthy church. Remember, it's a healthy church, which means these are things you want to look at your life and say, well, if it made them healthy, it'll make me healthy. Notice the place that prayer and fasting plays. They prayed to seek the Lord's will. They prayed when they felt they had discovered the Lord's will. And I have no doubt that they continued to fast and pray as Barnabas and Saul were out doing the Lord's will. And so this church, it models for us a people that are ever dependent upon the Lord to direct and guide their lives. And as I've said a number of times here in our last couple of studies, I hope the same is being said of each one of us and this body of believers. And if it isn't, may he cause it to be so. And so there's a period of prayer and fasting. We see that in verse 3. Then notice also in verse 3, it says, They laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Now some of us here, we may be familiar with that concept of laying your hands on a person while you pray for them. Others of us may not be familiar with that. The laying on of hands, it speaks of a formal commissioning 
to the work that God had called them to. Now, this is not the laying on of hands that commissioned Barnabas and Saul to ministry. As we often see, and maybe in our day, when we lay hands on a, a new pastor or, or an elder of a congregation or something like that. The laying on of hands in this particular instance is a commissioning to this particular work, which we're going to read about as we continue through Acts 13. It's a commissioning to the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and of Barnabas. And in it, not only are they praying for them, but there's also in it a communicating that they're recognizing God's call upon these two men's life, and there's a communicating to them that we are with you in this endeavor, even though we may not all be getting on the boat and going with you. And so Barnabas and Saul, and we're also going to learn Mark is with them as well, they may have been the ones physically going on this journey, but in truth and in reality, all the hearts of that local church are going with them as well. Two things come immediately to mind as I read that. One, Barnabas and Saul weren't venturing out on their own, based on their own inclinations, without the backing and the support of others. They weren't just venturing out on their own. They didn't just decide to go and do something without bringing it before others, in this case, other church leaders, and, and just saying, well, God told me to do it. Rather, they entrusted themselves to others. They began to look for God's confirmation of his calling through those he had placed in their lives and leadership roles. That's the first thing we notice. Secondly, Barnabas and Saul, very important, they weren't going out and soon to be forgotten. The idea like out of sight, out of mind. But rather they were going out with the full support of their home church. Now, full supported, fully supported. And many days from now, weeks and even years, this journey is going to be a three-year journey. But with the full support of their church. If you look at that phrase there in verse 3, it says, and they sent them off. We could translate that perhaps a little more literally, they let them go or they set them free. We might word it this way, they freed them up to be able to go. And that's the idea. They freed them up to be able to do what it was that God had called them to do. Again, Saul and Barnabas, they were the primary leaders of this congregation. And so the, this congregation freed them up to go do what it was they were called to do in that others stepped in to meet the needs that would become evident with Saul and Barnabas no longer there. They freed them up to go do what God was calling them to do. Additionally, traveling as they were about to do for as long as they were about to do so, three years, would become pretty costly pretty quickly. The cost for things like ship fare, food, lodging, etc., all of that would add up and become pretty costly pretty quickly. And so when it speaks here of their being freed up to go and do what they were called to do, among other things, it references the meeting of their financial needs so that they could devote themselves to doing what they were called to do. And so Saul and Barnabas... We know, Acts chapter 18 will tell us, they were not above working with their own hands to make a living for themselves. 
We see an example of that in Acts chapter 18, where Paul would essentially work a full-time job, and then on his breaks, he would teach the people. So they weren't against working, so to speak, with their own hands to earn their living. But truth be told, every hour that they were, in Paul's case, making tents was one less hour that they could be out and about advancing the gospel. And in particular, on this particular missionary journey, they were in a city for a bit of time, and then they moved on to the next city, and then they moved on, and then they moved on, hardly conducive for them to go get a local job to provide for their needs. And so what does this church do? It frees them up that they might be able to go do their ministry by supporting them. The point of all, the point of all of this is this. It speaks to the invaluable place that those that don't go play in the lives of those that do. Barnabas and Saul, they were, horn they were uh, supported in a host of different ways and so they could be sent out by this specific congregation that made their going possible. And it continues, that continues to be true today. And so I encourage you, find missionaries that you appreciate, that you feel God has put a calling on their lives and support them. Support them in prayer. In our days, you can FaceTime people, you can email people, you can interact with people. Let them know that you care about them, that you love them, that they're not allowed, alone out there on the mission field, and that you are back here in support of them. And financially support them as well, so that they can do what it is that God called them to do. Verse 4 continues, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. No demographic analysis, no three-year study to find out the best places to go and, and all these kinds of things, no market surveys, something today that is called spiritual mapping, finding out the best place to go where clearly God's going to work the greatest way, a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Where would you have us to go? Now they go to Seleucia. You know why they went to Seleucia? It was a port city. That's where they'd be able to get on a boat and begin to head out. So nothing like um, spiritually spooky or anything like that. Just common sense. We want to get a boat so we headed inland. No, you, you go to where in common sense. And so the Holy Spirit calls them. They're filled by the Holy Spirit. We learn that down in verse 9. They head to this port city of Seleucia, and their first missionary journey is going to begin. It's going to continue all the way to just about the end of chapter 14. And again, it lasts about three years. Now, in verse 3, notice this. We read there that the church sent them out. You remember, remember that, hopefully. Here now, in verse 4, notice it says, and they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the Christians of the church in Antioch sent out Barnabas and Saul, but more importantly, the Holy Spirit sends out Barnabas and Saul. So any group of Christians can send someone, but if the Spirit doesn't send them, it's really not going to amount to an internally effective ministry. And so the church sends them out and confirms what the Holy Spirit is doing. But notice this also with verse 4. It says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. So the church sends them out. The Holy Spirit sends them out. 
But they actually have to go. They actually went, it says. The Holy Spirit gave direction. The church confirmed that direction, but it was up to them to actually go and begin that journey. I think a lot of us have been called to certain things. And maybe some folks have spoken into our lives and, and confirmed that calling. But for whatever reason, we haven't actually gone on that journey. We're waiting for the day. We're waiting for all the circumstances to be perfect. We're weighing out our options and we kind of like this comfortable setting that we're in and we don't actually go. They actually went. And hence they will fulfill the ministry that God called them to do. So we read there, they went down to Seleucia. That's a port city there uh, on the mainland. And it says from there, they begin to sail over to the island of Cyprus. Now, it doesn't tell us that they did anything in Seleucia, though I suspect there were some people on the dock that heard about the Lord from Paul and Barnabas there in Seleucia. And I suspect a lot of people on the boat heard about the Lord from Saul and Barnabas. And certainly when they got there to Cyprus on that new dock, they probably told people about the Lord. But that's not recorded for us. And we'll see that not every single interaction that these two men had is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Luke chooses what he wants to present to us about their journey. For whatever purpose or reason, God laid on his heart for him to do so. And here they sail from Seleucia to Cyprus. It's about 40 miles off the coast of the mainland there, of, is a little bit north of Israel. That little island of Cyprus, today uh, it's, it's a similar distance away from Turkey, Asia Minor then. And so it's just sort of plopped down there right in the middle there of the Mediterranean. And so they go there. Now, we might ask, why Cyprus? We're never told. We're not told why they head out there. We're not told that the Holy Spirit specifically said, I want you to get on a boat and go to Cyprus. We could ask the same question, why not go to Cyprus? One thing that I note is interesting is in Acts 4.36, we learn that Barnabas grew up on the island of Cyprus. And so the answer, why Cyprus, may be as simple as, as this. Well, that's where I grew up, and I'd love to reach those people for Jesus. That's not very super spiritual. But sometimes that's how God works. He just lays a place on our hearts that makes sense for us. They go to Cyprus. It seems Barnabas, why not begin ministry there? And that's what they do. And so they come to Cyprus. Notice there, it says in verse 5 that they arrive in the, the city, the town there of Salamis. That was a port city there. It was actually, you might call it the commercial capital of the island. Located kind of in the, where it was located there on the east side of the island. It was a perfect place uh, for merchants to kind of come in and get back out onto the next place that they were headed. And so we have this port city. And you'll notice in verse 5, the first place that Barnabas and Saul go, it says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And it mentions they had John to assist them. And so we know Barnabas grew up on the island, and he was a Levite, a Jewish Levite. And we see that there's a synagogue here on the island, so we can draw our conclusion that there's a Jewish population there on the island. And that is the first place that Barnabas and Saul choose to go that they might proclaim the word of God, which will be the heart of their missionary efforts. 
wherever they go, is to proclaim the word of God. And they go here to this synagogue first to fulfill sort of that mandate of scripture to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Additionally, the Jewish synagogue, its service lent itself in many ways to the ministry of a former rabbi like Saul and a Levite like Barnabas. The, as you know, we talked about this, the synagogues, they practiced what was called the open synagogue. The service was essentially like this. Somebody would come along and they would read a passage from the law, the writings of Moses. They would have another person read, or maybe the same person read, a portion from the prophets, all from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And then a learned man among the congregation was given the opportunity to address the congregation. And so there, Paul and Barnabas, maybe Paul wearing some of his old priestly garb, perhaps, would enter into that synagogue. He would sit, the synagogue leader would turn and say, Rabbi, would you like to teach? Would you like to explain to us the word? And of course, Paul, I was hoping you'd ask. And Paul jumps up and he takes the opportunity. Now in that verse, you'll notice it says that they had John to assist them. We've already learned about this John. His other name was Mark. And he pops up again on multiple occasions in the book of Acts. So we'll kind of put him aside for now. We'll come back to him. But we see that he's there with his uncle Barnabas and his uncle's friend Saul. And he's their assistant. Luke goes on, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they get to the island of Cyprus. They begin ministering on the east coast in the city of Salamis. And here now we find them in the city of Paphos, which is on the west coast of this island. Notice what Luke says there in verse 6, that they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, right to left, so to speak. Start on the east coast and on the west coast. Luke doesn't tell us all the events that occurred in between. No doubt they stopped in this little town and that little town and they told others that might be uh, willing to listen about Christ. But what he does is he gives us this specific example here of the ministry that they had on that island by talking about their interaction in the city of Paphos. Let me give you a little bit of background of that city because I think it, it helps paint the full picture of what ministry would have been like. And so as I mentioned, the city of Paphos, I think I mentioned, it was the capital city. I don't think I did. It was the capital city on this island. So Salamis was the, the commercial capital, so to speak. This was the political capital on the island. That tells us it would have been a thoroughly Roman city since the Romans dominated that area. And thus, it would have included all that went along with Roman pagan society. And yet this is where Paul and Barnabas choose to go. We know from history that the worship of the Roman goddess Venus was centered out of the entire Roman Empire there in the city of Paphos. The Roman goddess Venus, she was also known as Aphrodite. Venus was the goddess of sexual love. And with a nickname like Aphrodite, you probably could have guessed that. Early church leader Athanasius, 
who was just a little bit before Augustine, many of you know that name, but early church leader Athanasius, he said that the island styled the religion on the deification of lust. And of course, if this is the headquarters of the entire empire for that particular religion, you can only imagine what the city of Paphos was like. This was a rough place to go and do ministry and do gospel ministry. And yet, it's the very place that Saul and Barnabas knew that they had to go to do gospel ministry. As I was looking sort of at a map of Cyprus, trying to figure out where these places were, if we were inside, we'd throw it up on the screen for you. So you might want to Google uh, Bible Times map of Cyprus or something like that. But as I was doing so, it struck me that immediately after this city of Paphos, that Paul and Barnabas are going to go north to Asia Minor, to today what we call Turkey. And so you can see it on a map if it was in front of you. They're traveling south to get down to Paphos, and then they're going to go north to get up to Asia Minor. It's as if they're going out of their way to get to this particular city. And I think that's exactly what they're doing. Because the people of Paphos needed gospel ministry. And so once more, in our study of the book of Acts, we come back to a recurring theme that we have been considering uh, that is found in our scriptures. And that is this, that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Did the people of Paphos deserve to have the gospel come to them through the ministry of Saul, Barnabas, and Mark? Of course they didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves the gospel and the experience of the grace of God in their lives. Nobody does. And certainly not the people of Paphos. But we learn this in our study of the scriptures. Whether a person's life is neat and tidy on the outside and hardly appearing in need of the grace of God, like the Jews, for instance, in the city of Salamis, or if their life is marked by open sin and debauchery, like the Gentiles in the city of Paphos. Here's the truth, and we, we rejoice in this truth. Every soul is in need of God's grace, and God is willing to show every soul his grace. And the place where that is found is at the cross of Calvary where Jesus gave his life to save sinners. And in a few minutes, as we come to a close today, we're going to be celebrating his sacrifice by taking communion with one another. And so this morning, whether you're one of those folks whose life is kind of neat and tidy on the outside and hardly appears in need of God's grace, or your life is a little rough around the edges, and you find yourself uh, seemingly unworthy of God's grace. Wherever you are this morning, may the Lord impress on each one of our hearts today our need for God's grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that grace was poured out like a fountain at the cross of Calvary. Amen? May the Lord fill our hearts with that truth. Let's pray together. Father, we are delighted to come to the communion table once more this morning. A lot of us here, we've been Christians a long, long time. Some of us here are not even yet Christians. And yet every one of us can come back 
to the cross of Christ and see the grace of God poured out, not for the sins of somebody else, but for our sins. And so, Father, I'm asking, I believe it's a prayer according to your heart, Lord, that you would enlarge each one of our hearts this morning with the wonder of Calvary, the wonder of the sacrifice of the cross. And you would be glorified by the attitude of each heart here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.